Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and great to see you all on this fantastic evening. We are so pleased uh, to welcome Pindrop here to BAFTA 195. Uh, my name is Julian. I'm the director here. And uh, this is the home of BAFTA, where all the decisions are made uh, regarding all the exciting talent. Uh, and it's great that we have Pindrop here. Uh, two very, very special people, the founders of Pindrop. We have Simon Oldfield and Elizabeth Day here. And I just want to give you a big round of applause and welcome the two BAFTA 195. It's a real pleasure to see you all here and to welcome back the magnificent William Boyd, um, who is our all-time favourite narrator, which we're never meant to say out loud. It's like the guy who keeps saying the Olympics is the best Olympics ever, but it is really true, and you're in for a treat. William Boyd is the author of countless wonderful novels, including Any Human Heart, Restless, the James Bond novel Solo, and very excitingly, he's delivered his new novel, Sweet Caress, which is out in September, which he told us earlier manages to do something that no novel has ever achieved before, which is so intriguing. Um, so I hope you will buy your copies. Um, William's going to be reading a short story. It's one of a series of short stories he's been writing featuring a character called Bethany Melmoth. Um, it's never been read aloud before, so you're all in for a special treat. So without further ado, please welcome William Boyd. This is my third pin drop, and the story I'm going to be reading is my fourth Bethany Melmoth story that I've read at pin drop, they've got the exclusive rights. Uh, I read two in one night, because sometimes they're quite short. Um, but uh, this one is a, a good, proper length short story. Uh, and I should explain a little bit before I read about um, Bethany, uh, because she's a 23-year-old girl. And what do I know about 23-year-old girls? Well, at one stage in my life, Perfectly legitimately, he added, I knew a lot of <laughs> girls in their early 20s, but they were nieces and goddaughters and their friends. And I looked on at their lives um, with intense curiosity. And they were all drifting uh, emotionally, pr professionally, and so on. And I was curious about what it must be like to be a, an early 20-something uh, young girl in today's world, and um, I wrote a very short, short story initially, um, only two pages, about Bethany breaking up with her, her boyfriend, Sholto, um, and it seemed to catch the mood, and subsequently, every time I was asked to write a short story, I wrote another one about Bethany. Uh, the spectator rang me up and said, would you write a short story for our Christmas issue. So I wrote a, a Christmas Bethany short story uh, and various other magazines and uh, have asked me. And so over the comparatively short number of years, let's say four or five years, I've written nine short stories featuring uh, this young girl. And I'm in the process of writing the 10th and then I'm going to stop and see what happens. Um, so they're all uncollected. Um, they've all appeared in little magazines or free sheets or strange anthologies. Um, but uh, I, I'm not sure what to do with them or her next. And I don't know if I'll publish them as a little collection. But there's a wonderful opportunity to 
um, test the, the stories on, a, on an audience. And I think somehow reading them out has been their biggest success, in a way. Uh, something about Bethany's life seems to get to people. Um, so this is the, actually the eighth in the sequence of ten, and it, it was published a, a year or so ago in a small anthology that none of you will have read. Um, I don't think I need to say anything more than that, except that she's 23 years old. Um, her mother lives in Fulham. Um, she's had many different types of job as she searches for her her métier, her, her profession. She's been a conjurer's assistant. Um, she's worked in a shop in an arcade off Bond Street. She's been a film extra. She's tried to get into drama school and failed. You get the picture. Um, so here we are. It's, this story is called uh, Tears of a Clown. Uh, often I don't give them titles, but this, in this particular anthology, they wanted a title that was something to do with a pop song. And this is quite apt, in fact. So Tears of a Clown it is, but it's essentially a Bethany story. And there's collection, I see the collection of the stories under the sort of all-embracing title of The Dreams of Bethany Melmoth, because basically she's dreaming about love, job, future, etc., etc. Um, and uh, she's having a bit of a hard time um, living the dream. So here we go, Tears of a Clown. Bethany Melmoth sits patiently on the tube train that is stuck in a tunnel somewhere between Knightsbridge and South Kensington. She's unperturbed, she's calm, because this is normal, this is life. This situation conforms to her new understanding of the world and the human predicament. Life, as she now knows, is a malfunctioning system. Failure, breakdown, dysfunction, this is the norm. As soon as you acknowledge this fact, then everything becomes easier. Things go wrong. This is the essential feature of our world. It applies to washing machines, motor cars, computers, staplers, central heating, bullcocks, the internet, stock markets, incredibly expensive fighter aircraft, printers, toasters, nuclear power stations, kettles, cameras, fountain pens, and, of course, human relationships of all kinds. Things go wrong. This will be her new dictum, her private mantra. She'll write it on a piece of card and stick it above her desk. She senses irritation, panic, frustration building amongst the other passengers in the carriage on the tube train. They see this enforced wait in a tunnel beneath London as abnormal, wrong, anger-inducing. Big mistake. A train that runs smoothly and arrives on time is the exception to the implacable rule. Once you understand that, then life's irritations and inconveniences change their nature. It's like complaining about the weather. What's the point? You get the weather you get. Look at me, Bethany thinks. Look at how at ease I am. And she notices, some, notices someone is looking at her. A young guy, diagonally opposite, with short, dark, cropped hair and a pointed Robin Hood beard. He's attractive, handsome in an unobtrusive, unshowy way, Bethany sees instantly. But there's something wrong with his good looks, something not quite right. Maybe it's his short hair, she thinks, as if it's growing back after a brain operation. 
Or, she thinks again, as if he's a soldier and he's grown the beard to demilitarize himself somehow. She looks down at her book, slightly irritated that their eyes had met and that therefore he knows she knows he was looking at her. She turns a page, Metamorphosis and Other Stories by Franz Kafka. She hears the guy clear his throat in the way that a throat clear can be a signal, like a shh or a tss. It says, look at me. Unreflectingly, she looks up. He's holding up the book he's reading, The Trial by Franz Kafka. (laughs) The train starts with a lurch. Bethany walks up the Fulham Road towards the street that contains her mother's house, her rucksack heavy on her back, and her carrier bags bumping annoyingly against the side of her knees. There's no humiliation in coming back to live at home, she says to herself, reasonably. That's what home is for, a place you can come back to when required, no questions asked. Perhaps it's a little awkward that she left home a mere five days ago, she admits, but that's life. Certainly that's life as a dysfunctioning machine, as she now understands it. When she called her mother to say she was coming back, there was little welcome in her voice. What's wrong, Bethany said. I've met someone, her mother said. It's a bit inconvenient having you in your room just at this stage, if you see what I mean. I won't be there long, Bethany reassured her. It's just a blip. Five mistakes, Bethany writes in her diary. One, meeting Sholto. Two, getting upset when he left me to go travelling. Three, missing him while he was away thinking I was still in love with him. Four, not telling him to fuck off when he came back. Five, not believing him when he said he was gay. (laughs) Six, agreeing to share a flat with him and his gay lover, Giel. Seven, not moving out when Giel's wife came to stay. (laughs) Bethany crosses out the five, and writes seven in its place. Bethany goes down to the Café Clay and asks for Sunil. Sunil's quit, she's told. Had a row with the manager and walked out. Do you know where he lives, Bethany asks. No one knows where he lives. Sunil has asked her to sing in his band, something she was initially uncertain about, but now that she's home again and has no job, seems suddenly appealing She checks her mobile, but she doesn't seem to have Sunil's number. Shit. She buys a cappuccino and sits down. Her mother has asked her to stay out of the house until at least 2 (laughs) a.m. Her new friend, Carlos, is coming for dinner. Bethany is to come home late and go straight up to her room as quietly as possible. Hi. She looks up. The guy from the tube who was reading Kafka is standing there. She knows this is not a coincidence. He asks if he can join her, and she says yes, after a second's pause. You followed me from the tube yesterday, didn't you? She accuses him. I was going the same way as you, he replies. Then you stalked my house and followed me here, Bethany says. No, I saw you walking the street and then followed you here, he says. You had this aura about you. You've broken up with your boyfriend, haven't you? How can you tell, she asks unreflectingly. Because of this aura around you. I can sense someone with an aura. Or are you just a twat, Bethany says sharply. (laughs) That's good, he says. That's funny. I can use that. 
Use it to improve your chat-up lines, she suggests. Feel free, be my guest. No, I'll use it in my act, he says. She knows he wants her to ask him what his act is, but she decides not to for the moment. So, you read Kafka too, she says. Kafka is the most read author on the underground, he says. It's a well-known fact. She looks at him quizzically. This could almost be true. She's getting used to his beard. Normally she doesn't like young men with full beards. A bit of stubble, a few days without shaving, fine. But this is a proper beard, untrimmed, grown to a sharp point on his chin, like a figure in an Elizabethan miniature, she now suddenly thinks. I'm Bethany, she says, offering her hand. He looks at her in surprise and hesitates to take it. I had a shower this morning, she says, clean as a whistle. He makes a conscious effort and shakes her hand. I'm, he hesitates again, I'm Aldous. You don't seem sure, Bethany says. <laughs> I have a few names I go by, he says. It's important to make the right choice at the first introduction. It shapes everything. What are your other names, Bethany says. Shell, Aldous says. Sometimes Sheldon Stone. Sometimes just Stone. Aldous Stone, then. No, actually, it's Aldous Peplow. <laughs> Bethany Peplow, she says to herself. <laughs> Don't like it. She does this unconsciously when she meets guys she's attracted to. It's a tick, a habit she can't rid herself of, always projecting forward into some unimaginable future, fast-forwarding. Why are you frowning like that, Aldous asks. Sorry, nothing, Bethany says. Why do you have other names? They're my stage names, he says. Ah, your act, of course, she says. I hope to hell you're not a conjurer. I'm a stand-up comic, he says. At 11 o'clock that night, Bethany's waiting in a small queue outside a comedy club in Dalston called The Quota System. There's a poster with names of the comics who are appearing, but she can't see Sheldon Stone on the list. Then she sees as an open mic session as well, and wearily she realises that when Aldous said he was a stand-up comic, what he really meant to say was that he would like to be a stand-up comic. <laughs> Still, she has to stay out late, so she might as well try to have a laugh. Her phone bings. She sees it's Sholto. Hi, Bethany, he begins. I shouldn't speak to you again, she says, interrupting. Bethany, please, Sholto begs. How was I to know she would do that? You knew, she says. You set me up. Well, I, I know they have this weird sexual thing going on, but I never believed she'd do that, Sholto retorts. They can do what they like, Bethany says harshly. I'm paying rent. I'm their lodger, not a sex slave. She lowers her voice as she senses the cue's growing interest in her conversation. <laughs> Hold on a second, she says, and lights a cigarette, turning to the wall. Giel wasn't in, Sholto says, so maybe Naomi wanted some company. Naomi was naked, for God's sake, Bethany says. She and Sholto had been lying in bed, half asleep, when the door opened, and before she could properly respond, a naked woman, Giel's wife Noemi, had slid into bed beside her and started kissing her and then Sholto. You pimped me out, Bethany says harshly. I swear, Sholto says, his voice cracking, I'd never do that to you. I love you. 
Oh, well, what's done is done, Bethany says, suddenly tranquil, as she just reminded herself of her new philosophy. Things go wrong. (laughs) Malfunction, disorder, chaos, the natural state of things. To expect that a middle-aged Dutch woman would not want to have spontaneous threesome sex in the middle of the night is the mistake she's making. (laughs) It's not your fault, she says to Sholter, appeasingly. It's life's fault. What are you talking about, he says. I don't understand. I have to go, she says. I'm meeting someone. Salt in the wound. Shellstone's act was not bad, actually, Bethany thinks to herself, standing in the bar, waiting for Aldous to appear. It showed promise anyway. He was the last one on for the open mic session, and the three comics before him were hopeless, so expectations were low, and the crowd's attention was waning, the hum of conversation growing. Please welcome Shell Stone, the MC said, and left the stage. The lights went off, and the spot shone on the microphone on its stand. No one appeared. Five seconds, ten. Then some sort of loud banging about occurred off stage in the wings, muffled grunts and curses. Then Shell Stone burst on stage and fell heavily to the ground. The spot found him and he staggered to his feet. He was wearing a tight black suit and a white shirt with a thin black tie. Bastard, fucking bastard, he bellowed in a thick Scottish accent at someone in the wings. Then he jolted, as if he suddenly realised where he was and had spotted the audience for the first time. He dusted himself down and stepped up to the microphone, thumbing away a trickle of blood from the corner of his lip. He stared out into the audience and smiled slowly. The place was completely quiet. Hello, Glasgow, he shouted, throwing his arms wide. The audience said nothing. Then the catcalls and the cheers, the jeers began. Sorry, sorry, Shellstone said, his accent cockney all of a sudden. Lost me bearings. <laughs> he turned to the wings and pointed. Oh, sort you out later, you bastard. The audience were completely with him now. He straightened his tie and smiled at them. I don't do this all the time, you know. This is my hobby. I got the day job. Smile. Guess what I do? There were a lot of ribald suggestions. Shell quietened the crowd. I'm a sperm donor, he said. (laughs) 25 quid a shot. Booze, hisses. It didn't get much better. Bethany sees Alder slip out of the stage door and look for her in the bar. He's back in his usual clothes, a zip-up jumper and cargo pants. And no one in the bar seems to recognise him as Shell Stone. You were great, she says. No, I wasn't, he says. I want your honest opinion. OK, let me buy you a drink, Bethany says. You find a table. It started quite well, Bethany says, but I'm afraid wanking jokes are so pathetic. <laughs> Sad. Didn't you see? Only the men thought it was funny. Yeah, I know, Alder says. It's pathetic, you're right. And it's not original, Bethany goes on. I think you stole it from a film anyway. Everybody steals everything, Aldous says defensively. It's the comic ethos. Bethany, mollifying, analyzes further. The beginning was such a shock, you see. You you shook us up. We all went quiet. Nobody knew what was going to happen. It was kind of dangerous. Funny and dangerous. That's the way to go, I reckon. And your accents were good. Yeah, Aldous says to himself, nodding. See what you mean. Keep it surreal. Yeah, don't let them relax. I've got to be more surreal. Kafka-esque, Bethany says. (laughs) Aldous truckles, drains his drink, and tries to kiss her. What's he like, Moxie asks, lighting her roll-up. He's cute, Bethany says. He's got a beard. Yetch, Moxie says. 
and he thinks he's going bald, so he cuts his hair really short. How old is he? Haven't asked yet, Bethany says, 27, 28. He tried to kiss me, but I wouldn't let him. Not like you, Moxie says. Bitch. Bethany smiles at her and tells her about Sholto and Noemi, having leapt out of that frying pan. She had no desire to be burned again for a while. So what are you going to do, Moxie asks. You can't stay at home. Try and get into drama school, Bethany says. You tried that before, Moxie says, and you didn't get in. Ah, but I've been in a film since then, Bethany says. An extra in an unreleased film, Moxie says. Very impressive. It'll be different this time. You see, you'll see, Bethany says. I've changed. Aldous and Bethany sit in a sushi bar on the Doors Road near Aldous's small flat. I'm having a bit of trouble rewriting my act, Aldous says, dabbing wasabi onto a rectangle of tuna. The quota are going to try me out on the bill, just five minutes, and I've only got material for two. You've only got material for 30 seconds, Bethany says. Let's be honest. He looks at her. I'm going to need your help, Bethany. I'm very busy, Bethany says. I'm applying for drama school. You know, interviews, learning lines. I'm manic depressive, Aldous says. I can't do this on my own. You mean bipolar, Bethany corrects him. Actually, I prefer manic depressive, Aldous says. I get periods of mania, and then I get depressed. What's the North Pole and the South Pole got to do with it? You're right, Bethany says. They are rather similar. There's something there, Aldous says, pointing his chopsticks at her. I don't go white to white, pole to pole. I go blazing red to pitch black. He pauses. There's a gag there. See, I told you I needed you. Bethany goes back with Aldous to his flat. I'm not sleeping with you, she warns. Not staying the night. We're going to work, Aldous says, a little wanly disappointed. Yes, come up with a new act. The flat is small and incredibly neat. A bedroom painted black with black blind, a kitchenette and a bathroom with a shower. The sitting room contains a sofa, a TV and a desk beneath some shelves filled with books. Very Spartan, Bethany observes, prowling around. She's very curious about dwelling places, perhaps because she's had so many herself in this last year. They tell you a lot about the occupants. When she lived with Sholto, he had the television switched on with the sound off 24-7. Aldous makes her a cup of coffee and sits at the desk facing her on the sofa. How do we start, he asks. Right, open a newspaper, Bethany says. See what grabs your attention instantly, no thinking about it. He fishes in the waste paper basket and takes out a standard and begins to flick through. Right, he says after a minute, here's something, makes me fume. Pets aren't called pets anymore, they're called companions. How bloody stupid. There you are, Bethany says, instant material. Take a pet on stage, introduce it as your companion. I can't take a dog or a cat on stage, Aldous complains. I'm not talking about mammals, Bethany says. We need something more surreal, remember? Bethany experiences a simultaneous thrill of pride and anxiety when she sees the name Shell Stone on the poster of comics appearing at the quota system. Then, in the auditorium at the back, she feels strangely anxious, even a bit sick, as if she were going on stage, not Aldous. She watches unsmilingly and silently with apprehension as the audience laugh. Shell starts with his usual banging and drunken fall on stage and said, Hello, Sydney, in a good Australian accent, 
and launches into an Australian anecdote before the yells and the boos quieten him. He asks him to guess his day job. More obscene suggestions. I'm a cage fighter, Shell says to the incredulous, heckling crowd. And from the wings, a small hamster cage is thrown on stage that he then proceeds to stamp flat with maximum force and aggression. <laughs> I'm against animals being imprisoned, he bellows, so I fight cages whenever I see them. <laughs> then he reminds everyone that pets aren't called pets anymore. No, they're called companions. I've brought my companion on stage, he says. He's an ant called Archie. <laughs> he reaches into his pocket and holds out a finger that Archie is perched on. He does backflips, Shell says, and puts Archie on the ground. Go on, boy, backflip, backflip. After ten seconds more cajoling, he was a wee bit hungover this morning. Archie still won't do a backflip, so Shell stamps on him. (laughs) Sod it, plenty more where he came from. (laughs) Bethany relaxes. This is all her stuff, and it's worked well. Surreality, that's Shell's shtick. Then Shell goes off message. Hands down. All you guys who watch internet porn, he says. See, ladies, it's universal. Then he goes into a riff about the pornification of everyday life, and Bethany senses half his audience leaving him, the room going quiet. Bethany has applied to 24 drama schools in the London area. In the space of three days, she's had 11 rejections. Then she had an acceptance from the English National Institute of Drama, E-N-I-D. Enid. The address was in Hampstead. No interview required because of your impressive film acting experience. (laughs) Fees, £3,000 a term, plus VAT. Bethany weighs this up shrewdly. There is the problem of the fees. There is the problem of chicanery. Still, it's an offer, she thinks. If I can't go to RADA or Lambda, then at least I can go to Enid. (laughs) She accepts the place offered. What she needs, she realises, is some stability in her life. However half-baked or half-cocked or half-assed Enid is, she calculates, she might be able to make it work for her. Coming home late from Aldous's flat, she's sleeping with him but not spending the night. Bethany is frightened by the shadowy figure of a man trying to open the front door of her mother's house. I'm calling the police, she shouts. No, no, please, the man says with a heavy accent. I'm leaving here. (laughs) A light goes on in the porch and Bethany sees he has a set of keys in his hand. I am Carlos, he says. I'm living with Alana. Alana is Bethany's mother. Bethany introduces herself, and they shake hands. Carlos is a thick-set young guy, handsome, with astonishingly white teeth, but with strangely old-fashioned-looking curly long hair, almost as if it had been permed. He looks a bit like a footballer from the 1970s. Alana opens the door and lets them both in, Bethany thinks it's time she moved out again. Shell's new act is going down well at the quota system. He does variations of Archie the Ant gag. He invites an audience member up on stage to stroke Archie. Then he or she stands on him. You killed him! You killed Archie! Tears, recriminations, abuse. He and Bethany work on new material. Bethany comes up with another number about how crap children's jokes are. Shell, she has to admit, does a fine, free-associating job deconstructing them. When are your shoes like the sun? No, you little prat, your shoes do not like the sun when they shine. They look like clean fucking shoes. 
Bethany goes to Hampstead to inspect Enid and is surprised to find a bona fide acting school with classrooms and a small but professionally well-equipped theatre. All the other students she meets there seem to be foreign, however. Her mother says she'll pay for the first term and Carlos finds her a job dog-walking at £40 an hour, as many hours she wants. Bethany is suspicious. This is not normal. (laughs) Everything seems to be going well, and this is not how the world works. No, life is a dysfunctioning system, she knows. Failure, breakdown, disappointment, frustration. Where are you hiding? Aldous is offered a gig at a comedy festival at the Soho Theatre. A TV company has asked him to audition. Bethany is due to start at Enid in a week, and when Aldous suggests she move in with him, it seems the natural thing to do. They are lying in bed when he asks her. She says she'll go back to her mother's and fetch a few things, see how it works for a week or two, she says. Nothing hard and fast, you understand. A test. Aldous slips out of bed to open a bottle of wine to honour their potential cohabitation. You're incredibly thin, Aldous, Bethany says. I mean, I'm thin, but you're thinner than me. You're not a male anorexic, are you? Aldous thinks about this, strums his ribs with a thumb. Just not very interested in food, he says. Like drink, though. He opens the wine and they celebrate. Aldous gives her a spare set of keys, symbol of the fluidity of their new arrangement. Come and go, he says. Be capricious. Bethany returns home to pick up a few clothes, books and her makeup. A rucksack's worth of commitment, she says to herself, climbing back up the stairs to Aldous's flat. She's about to ring the bell, but instead decides to use her new keys and let herself in. Music is playing in the sitting room, but there's no sign of Aldous. She hears the loo flush and heads for the bathroom. She can set her cleansers out, claim her space. Then she stops. Aldous clearly hasn't heard her come in and for some reason is talking to himself, it seems. Bethany leans forward, ear to the door, and hears what he's saying. Come on, Archie, he says. Time for your bath. There's there's a good boy. Hop in. We'll lather you up, get you all nice and clean. Bethany's coming to stay. Don't want to be a dirty little ant mucker, do we? Bethany stands there for a second thinking. Then she turns and quietly lets herself out of the flat. (laughs) Things go wrong. Life. Thank you very much. (laughs) 